Welcome back to the Lions College Football Podcast. I'm Brett Gibbons with thelions.com, and as always, I'm joined by Kelly Ford. Kelly, welcome back. We don't have too many more of these regular season episodes, but bowl season is right around the corner. How are you doing today, sir? Always doing great, Brett, because when I'm talking to you here on the show, we're talking college football. It's the greatest thing on this earth outside of my family. Don't tell them. Um, but yeah, dude, they, like it's so fun, right? And we're coming right down to the wire. I know you love bowl season, and I know we both love the regular season. Well, this is it. We've only got a couple weeks left. Rivalry week is right around the corner, but we've got some great games to get to before then. Midweek, what we're talking about today, I can't wait. There's some big games on the slate. Um, Yeah, man, anytime we're talking college football, it's a good time, so I'm excited to get into it. Now, before we get into it, though, don't forget to follow the lines on Twitter at TheLinesUS. I'm at Road to CFB, and Kelly's work can be found at KFord Ratings. We'll be here every single week breaking down the college football slate as well as the individual weeknight games, which you hinted at, that's what we're here to do today. It's a little bit of a bittersweet week, though. This is our last full week of action. I think we have two Tuesday games uh, the week of Thanksgiving, uh, but the season's almost over. But it's also never been more exciting. You say you love November football. We're absolutely in the thick of it with a lot of really exciting uh, bowl races, uh, college football playoff races, of course, and conference championship races. But the first game I wanted to talk about today, Buffalo. On the road at Miami of Ohio, the Red Hawks are 8.5-point home favorites, and this game carries an over-under of just 39.5 points. It kicks off Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN2, and it's a win-and-in with the MAC championship with Miami of Ohio, or if Ohio gets, uh, uh, Ohio Bobcats, that is, gets toppled by Central Michigan, then the Red Hawks will be playing Toledo in Detroit. Avion Smith, the quarterback, he's a much better runner than a passer. He only completed 8 of 17 passes against Akron. Raises a couple of red flags for me at the very least. He did rush for 52 yards, though. As a reminder, Brett Gabbert out for the year. Miami's been doing okay offensively without Gabbert, but it's clear Avion Smith is is not Gabbert. Gabbert is, is a much better quarterback, and I do think that they sorely miss him. Uh, but we do know what this Miami offense is about. Run the football and show, uh, shut opposing offenses down. They've been pretty good at that, considering they've allowed 21 points just once in MAC play. For Buffalo, there's a pretty clear divide when you look at their wins and losses. The average power rank uh, for my aggregated power ratings, that is, in their wins for Buffalo, 127th. Uh, you can't get much worse of an average than that, if you ask me here. And then if you're looking at their losses, an average power rank of 64th, plus they lost to FCS Fordham. So very clear divide of Buffalo's not very good. Uh, they might be three and three in Mac play, but they're three and seven on the year. Uh, they will not go bowling uh, as far as I know, at least they're hundred and second in points per drive, which is down from 62nd last year. They did turn over their offensive coordinator this last off season. Uh, needless to say, they are severely missing him as well. And in Mac losses this year, they're held to 12.3 points per game. Now, going against a Miami defense that's been playing as well as it is and is as stout as it is, I do want to look at Buffalo's team total. You can find it at 14.5, but their implied team total is 16 points. This is actually a play to the under for me. I believe more in the Buffalo team total. I would take under that as well. I don't see how they get to 14 points against Miami, who's capable of shutting teams out, worse teams out, and I believe Buffalo is a worse team. Uh, and also the Red Hawks on the other end, they, they run the third slowest pace in the country and are down their starting quarterback. So if I'm playing anything on this game, even at 39 and a half points, which is, that's low, but I'm still playing under. 
Yeah, Brett, you're saying that's your play, and uh, my numbers, they, they tend to agree with that. Both of these teams' respective defenses are currently power-rated the best they've been all season. And while both are playing well by their respective standards, that doesn't mean they're equal, kind of as you alluded to here. I have Miami minus 13 and a half. And yes, you know, the Gabbert not explicitly accounted for, but that's starting to be implicitly accounted for here. And even if it was like Gabbert got hurt last week, I don't think he's worth five points to the spread here. So my numbers do like Miami to cover this one um, if we're going to a side in this game. It's an 83% win expectancy for Miami. Ranked number 73 in my power ratings, Miami is the best team in the MAC East. The Red Hawks have the best offense and the best defense in the division as well. Like, this is the team that, that well, they are, and they should be on top of this division by my numbers. Um, but it's the defense, Brett, as you mentioned, that's, that's really been the story for this team. They rank number 31 in my unit power ratings. It's truly an impressive unit, and they're likely to give Toledo fits again in Detroit, as they did in Oxford just a few weeks ago in a tightly contested loss um, for the Red Hawks. For Buffalo, it's been a disappointing season. You kind of touched on that. I mean, when you lose to an FCS squad... It's hard to not, but that, I mean, that aside, the whole season as a whole, uh, the Bulls are in the top 10 of my underachievers list with 2.2 fewer wins than my projected um, wins in the regular season, or my preseason realistic expectations projected for this team to this point of the season, I should say. The Buffalo defense should be pretty evenly matched with the Miami offense. I talked about the defenses being the stronger units here, but I do expect the Miami defense to stifle the Bulls offense, which I have right now number 119 in the country. As you said, Brett, this is a win and in situation for the Red Hawks. And I'll think they'll, I think they'll wrap this one up here at home this week. Bottom line, Miami minus 13 and a half, just a 17% chance that Buffalo wins in Oxford for the first time since 2015, Brett. Yeah. And I know I brought this up on the show a couple of times. It'll get brought up inevitably during bowl season that Chuck Martin doesn't go for fourth downs and he runs a slow methodical <laughs> offense. It's not a modern offense for sure, but it doesn't really need to be this year because the defense is so darn good. And the other thing that Chuck Martin does do is he does get the most out of his players. This is a team that perennially overachieves expectations. Here they are again with the chance to be able to lock up, uh, first of all, to, to go 8-2, and two, which is of, of outstanding uh, for this team, and then a chance, obviously, to go to Detroit. So I do believe in Chuck Martin's team. I, I, do, I like your numbers there, but in such a low-scoring affair, I don't think I'm laying the points with the favorite but I am playing under the total. You said they overachieve annually, Brett. Right now, they're number 17 on my overachiever list, so they're doing it again this year. There it is. Moving from the MAC to the ACC, we have Boston College at Pitt. Pitt is a three-point home favorite. This game carries an over-under 47 points. That three is new. Uh, a little peek behind the curtain. We're recording this on Tuesday night. It was two and a half pretty much uh, for the better part of the day and yesterday, and now, now it's finally hit three, point total 47. So it kicks off Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN's main network. This is just the fourth time that these teams are playing since they both joined the ACC. As we know, they were formerly in the Big East, so it's not their fourth meeting of all time, but since they joined the ACC. But interestingly, though, this is a protected rivalry going forward. Uh, I know that they have to give Boston College their protected rivals and, and pit their protected rivals, but... This one was a little interesting to me, considering they had, don't have a ton of history, modern history, in the ACC. Boston College did open up a one-and-a-half-point favorite, but that flipped pretty quickly, and now it has climbed to as high as we've seen, its highest point at minus three in favor of Pitt. Pitt may be the most disappointing team in the ACC, maybe the country. Maybe I just, there were some pretty high expectations for this team, and now here they are at two and eight. They're not just disappointing, they're bad, flat-out bad. The Phil Dracovic experiment didn't work. He's now playing tight end for them. 
They're 129th in points per drive. I couldn't have seen that coming considering they hired. Oh, wait, just kidding. They hired Frank Signetti. I called this in the preseason. I blasted. What the hell are we doing, guys? Uh, Boston College was 123rd in points per drive last year. I don't know what they were doing bringing it back again. We were just talking about maybe it was a little shadow puppet for uh, Pat Narduzzi. Somebody's not going to talk back to him. And, and he hasn't. 129th. Not great. Kelly, they haven't even scored 14 points in any of their last three games. Although that does come against Notre Dame, Florida State, and Syracuse. They've scored 21, or they've scored more than 21, pardon me, just once outside of the, I have the term outlier on here, win. It was a 38-21 win against Louisville. We did highlight on here that that's a a great letdown spot for the Cardinals. Turned out to be more than that. Uh, Their only loss in the season. The defense on the other side for the Panthers, they're just not good enough to make the make up the difference. They're down from 22nd in points per drive allowed to 64th. So from what I would consider top tier to very middle tier of the pack. On the other side, Boston College, like I mentioned, they were 123rd in points per drive under Frank Signetti. They get rid of him. Now they're up to 54th in points per drive. And a lot of that can be attributed to their quarterback, Thomas Castellanos. He's been fun at times, pretty decent dual threat guy, but the wide receivers aren't helping him very much. He has the third highest drop rate in the FBS, although it is marginally getting better. They've gone from like six drops, five drops, zero drops, four drops to about two to one every game. So it's not perfect, but it is getting a little bit better. Outside of the Louisville game, uh, Boston College has done a really nice job keeping Castellanos uh, protected as well. He doesn't take a lot of hits or sacks or pressures, although he did have 20. It's very funny to go look at his pressures because they're all very single digits. And then against Louisville, he had 21 pressures and five sacks. But that's besides the point. Wide receiver Ryan O'Keefe, he's confirmed to be out for the season. He had a pretty scary injury, had to go to the hospital, was released uh, later on, but he will not play. Uh, although they do return running back Kai Robichaud. Uh, Pat Garwo, the other running back, he's out for the season. But Robichaud had 20 or more carries in every game without Garwo, that going back to Week 7. Looking at season-long metrics, Pitt's 25th in rushing success rate allowed. So I, when I first saw it, I was like, wow, they're doing a lot better against the run than I thought. Well, when you dive into the numbers, that's, this is why season-long metrics are a little bit misleading. Syracuse just rushed for 154 yards on them with a tight end who then ended up winning like the running back of the week in the ACC or something like that. It was a great performance by him. But if you look back further in games where they're not like vastly out talented, I went back to the Wake Forest game, Demond Claiborne rushed for seven to carry on them as well. So this is not, I think this is a, a, a rush defense. That's a lot worse than maybe the season long metrics let on. Yeah. Brett, you said at the beginning, Pitt might be the most disappointing team in the country. I have a list for that, and my numbers do agree. Uh, Panthers currently ranked number one on my list of underachievers in 2023 with 3.6 fewer wins than projected by my preseason realistic expectations at this point in the season. It's really hard to believe, Brett, that this program won the ACC just two years ago. I mean, two years ago they were lifting a trophy in Charlotte, and now here we are. I don't know if they'll win another ACC game outside of potentially against a team playing in the championship game, as you mentioned, that outlier um, result against Louisville. Um, Pitt's power rating has fallen to a season-worst number 72, due primarily to the offense, which, as you mentioned, has topped 21 points only twice this year against FBS opponents. They've now fallen to a season-worst number 100 this week, Brett. So I built it all up. Pitt's not very good. They're having a bad year. All that said, 
the model still has pit minus five in this game. So you said an open BC is a favorite. Now it's up to pit minus three. My model's been at pit minus five. Uh, I think it's trending in the right direction with that line in Vegas. It's a 64% win expectancy for pit in this one. Um, there is reason for optimism for Pitt here, as Boston College's defense is only power ranked number 86. That makes it the weakest opposing FBS defense the Panther offense will face all season. Uh, in the preseason, my numbers suggested that Boston College had the easiest overall schedule of any Power 5 team. They assigned the Eagles a 47% chance to go bowling. Well, Boston College took advantage of that, Brett. They reached the six-win mark with three games to spare, no less. It's undoubtedly been a super successful season as the Eagles are going bowling for their first time since 2019. But with a power rating rank in the 80s and both units, offense and defense, ranked 70 or worse, there is still room for improvement in Chestnut Hill. This should be a good test for this team this week. But bottom line, I have Pitt minus five. It's a 64% chance that the Panthers earned their first victory in this series since 2014. But, Brett, as you said, they've only played twice since that time, so it's not like they're playing every single year. I was a little bit surprised, too, that it was a protected rivalry. Um, we've seen it. Not every team has to have equal numbers of those. Not every team has to have one. I don't believe Penn State in the new-look Big Ten has a protected rival, if I'm not mistaken. So um, would, wouldn't have been surprised to not see that, but given the options, I can understand why with their Big East ties previously. I think the ACC has an even two protected rivals. Do they? If I'm if I just off the top of my head, um, people are gonna fact check me on that. But either way, outside of the Northern Illinois game in Week One, Boston College has really just beaten the teams that they should and lost to the teams that they shouldn't beat. And Pitt, honestly, in my estimation, I think this is a team Boston College should beat. Uh, Virginia Tech, the, that result I think skewed this line a bit. But, hey, Virginia Tech's playing pretty darn good football lately, so I'm, I'm not really knocking them for that as, as much as I think the market is. Kelly, I'm going to be honest. I don't love fading the market, especially when it steams this much. I don't love fading your numbers, but this is a play on Boston College for me. I, I think I'm going to take them at, at three or better. Uh, I even think they're live to win this game. If you're putting together maybe an underdog round robin, if you're looking for um, a contrarian pick in, in an office pool, pick them. Uh, Boston College, I, I think, is not, not the worst pick. Uh, yeah, this is this is Boston College uh, plus three for me or better. Pitt has one FBS win, man, all year. Granted, it's a good one, but they have I one. Like, I, I don't but blame you at all. I don't blame you that, at all. That's, that's the problem, though, is, is when we get into these – I, I know. You know we, we've both seen this so many times. It's over and over again multiple times a season that when you look at a line, you're just like, I just don't quite understand that. This team is clearly worse than this team, and then there's something to it. So I it's – I say it trep with trepidation, but I still I still like Boston College with the points here in this game. And again, I think they're live to win. All right, we have USF on the road at UTSA. UTSA, 15-and-a-half-point home favorite. And this game carries a wonderful over-under of 67 points. The reason I brought this one up is because I think that there's some intrigue to it, at least in this line, uh, and something that I feel I think I feel pretty good about. But this one kicks off Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN2. This is the first ever meeting between these teams, but that's not the only interesting thing uh, on the board here. There are three 6-0 teams currently at the top of the American. We have UTSA, SMU, Tulane. UTSA and Tulane play on Black Friday next week. If UTSA wins this game, this could set up a winner-takes-all um, spot in the AAC title game or the first of two back-to-back -back matchups. Either way, I think it's pretty interesting. SMU is uh, Memphis and Navy on tap, uh, so we've got a pretty fun race, I think, developing here. 
UTSA is coming off six straight wins out of their bye week. They've looked much better than the 1-3 and three team that start the year that lost to both Houston and Army. But the average power rank of these opponents during that stretch is 108. Plus, when they played Rice, Rice did not have JT Daniels. USF, well, they rank 112th in my aggregated power rating, so not much of a difference here. But I think that this will matter against when we talk about the, the game against Tulane when we compare average point margin and strength of schedule. But... I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about that one next week. Only Jacksonville State runs a faster pace than USF on offense. That's a big influence from Alice Gilles, who came down from Tennessee. I think he's doing a great job. Five and five. How about it for USF? I don't. I think this team had a two and a half uh, over under win total, or three and a half. Maybe it got steamed up to preseason. Their quarterback Brian ba- uh, Brown. He's the definition of a gunslinger. Eleven point two average depth of target. Twenty turnover worthy throws but also 2,500 yards and only eight picks from all those turnover-worthy throws. So he's having a pretty darn good season, I think. The pass game also runs a lot through slots. Sean Atkins, he's the third leading receiver in the AAC. UTSA, on the other hand, has been very good against the pass uh, this past year. I think it's their strongest unit on the entire team. Cam Alexander, he's the top-rated coverage corner in the American, according to PFF. Their issue defensively, though, tackling. They are not a very good tackling team. When, when you're talking about an athletic team like USF, even if the ball is going downfield, not so much a, a rack or a yak team, uh, that can still cause some issues. However, the Bulls' biggest pitfall this year, finishing drives. They're 88th in points per quality possession, but they are 27th in generating those quality possessions, which means they're not getting in the end zone when they have a sustained drive that pushes deep into opposing territory. I don't have their preseason win total right in front of me, Brett, but I will say my preseason realistic expectations said that five and seven was the most likely record for this USF team. 55% chance to win five plus games, 30% chance to go bowling. So um, not suggesting that USF had the loftiest of expectations, but I do think my numbers were a little bit higher on them than Vegas. If folks were on that one from the start, but Brett, as you mentioned, this is going to be a well, it already has been, and it's going to continue to be a very fun conference championship game race. I mean, we've got two weeks left in the regular season. You got three teams undefeated at the top. It's absolutely it phenomenal. The I know, it, it always, I know. It, it, I remember last year being like the most convoluted uh, conference championship scenario. If you looked at all the ifs and buts for all the teams, of course, those being the ones that departed for the Big Twelve. Yes, and it makes it more interesting, though, here in the American, because remember, the number one seed, that the team with the most conference wins, will end up hosting this game. So it's not just, oh, what color are you going to wear, what, what bench are you going to sit on at the title game? It's, no, you're playing in your stadium, which is a huge advantage, especially for a conference that has aspirations of putting their champion in the New York Six. So yeah. uh, there's a lot on the line here the last two weeks, as you mentioned. I'm, I'm, and I just got done talking about how you know I kind of thought USF was going to be primed for a, for a pretty good year, at least relative to expectations. I'm not sure they're built to pull off the upset in this game in particular. I have UTSA minus 15 and a half. It's an 86% win expectancy for the Roadrunners. And you said it. UTSA has won six straight. They're playing at a different level now than they were early in the year. I mean, it just, it's a different team. Uh, the offense is humming. It's climbed all the way to number 43 in my unit rankings. That's important here. Because the USF defense, they've been dreadful this year. Uh, They currently rank number 128. Again, we have 133 teams. This is a bottom six team in my defensive unit rankings. Uh, But the offense, on the other hand, for the Bulls, currently ranked the season best number 74. And going up a UTSA defense that ranks number 70, I do think that side of the ball will be a pretty even uh, matchup 
but the mismatch for me, it's on the other side, as I mentioned. This game's in the Alamo Dome, and the fact that just so much is on the line for UTSA, as we talked about with the conference championship game, still in reach, or not still in reach, but right in front of them, I just don't see this game being all that close. USF surprised me before this year. They certainly can again. I just think UTSA is going to be locked in and ready to go here. Bottom line, UTSA minus 15.5, 86% chance the Roadrunners move to 7-0 and in conference play and set up what you said would be an absolute showdown next week. Yeah, I. you mentioned being the sixth worst defense in the country. You don't really have to go all back all that far to see that in action considering USF scored 50 points in a football game that they lost to Memphis, 59-50. I know. Fun, fun, but not great. I'm going to be honest here, Kelly. I think I lean USF with the points. Offensive potency, potential look ahead for UTSA. I know that they have to take care of business, but boy, that Tulane game, that's big in the window that they may be looking at. And I know this is a little narrative street that I like to bring a little bit of everything in here, and I kind of think it does matter. Jeff Trailer's name is all over every open job in the FBS right now. And I, I know that he signed like a 55-year yeah. extension, and he's come out and said, I'm a San Antonio guy. I want to stay here. And I love that. But what happens when Texas A&M dangles like, I don't know, $12 million a year in front of him? Um, to say that that's a non-factor right now, I think, is a little foolish. How much of a factor it is? Could be minuscule. He he wants to win a conference title. Uh, that would be his third straight if he did, dating back to, to two straight in the co- conference USA. Uh, but, man, I don't know. I think there's a lot of noise and a lot of potential for a look at here. Uh, I think I lean USF with, with, with the points. Uh, anything over 14, really. All right, closing this one up, we have uh, an intr- very interesting matchup. I think interesting is the, the correct word for this. Maybe not so much exciting. But with Colorado on the road at Washington State. Washington State is a four-and-a-half-point home favorite. The game carries an over-under of 64 points. Kicks off Friday night at 10.30 p.m. Eastern on FS1. And, Kelly, what in the hell happened to Washington State? What happened to both these teams, Brett, if we're being completely honest a little bit? Well, but I get it. I get it. Washington <laughs> State certainly more. Trust me, I've got a fact that I'll come back to here in a second, man. I, I don't Good. know. That's the answer. Yeah, I don't know. I, I have explanations for both, but Washington State's <laughs> I had to look up. Uh, Colorado's I, I could figure out. But either way. Washington State's offense just fell off a cliff, like a, a physical straight-line cliff. 40 points per game is what they're averaging in the first three FBS games, and then they went on a bye. And mind you, Wisconsin, Oregon State were both in those first three games, so like not pushover defenses. Since then, they're managing half of that, only 20 points per game, ever so slightly saved by a recent 39-point outburst against Cal. These in a losing teams, effort. In a losing effort, yeah, that is <laughs> boy. They seem to do just enough to lose. That that's they lose ten seven to Stanford. They lose forty two thirty nine to Cal. Either way, I uh, what teams are doing against them is they're rushing three and dropping eight, and it just absolutely confounds Cam Moore. It's like the old here's how to beat Patrick Mahomes until Patrick Mahomes adapted and started to be able to beat it. Uh, but the fact is, Washington State has no run game to speak of, so they cannot punish teams for dropping eight guys. Their best, uh, Ward's best game of the year so far was against Colorado State. He averaged 2.24 seconds time to throw. Now, that's unsustainable. Nobody's throwing 2.24 seconds over the course of entire season. But three of his first four games were sub 275. And I always say, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. By the time you get done saying 1,003, the ball better be starting to come out of your hands or you better have an idea of where you're going with it. 
His average time to throw number since the buy-in, again, this has a lot to do with dropping eight, 294, 311, 314, 244, which is good, 284, 293. To surmise all those numbers, way too darn long. He needs to be shortening up his time. And and what that tells me is when these teams are dropping eight, he doesn't really trust his eyes and he doesn't really know where to go to the football. So he's holding on to it really long. Well, what happens when you hold on to it really long? He's now taking 17 pressures per game since then, and he's taken 25 sacks. That's what happens when you drop this, make him second-guess himself, take away the first read. That's how you beat Washington State cut and dry. Now, can Colorado's defense hold up well enough to force Ward to take those kind of coverage sacks? I don't know. Hard to say since uh, the book's out on how to completely stop this Washington State offense, and it's very simple. This does not take a mathematician to figure out. But again, I don't know that Colorado has the dues to be able to do that. And an injury note on Colorado's defensive front, safety Miles Slusher did not play last week. He's a big absence considering he is the veteran presence in that defensive back room. Colorado on the other side, they have lost four straight games. They're one in six in their last seven. If you just look at the scoreboard and just look at the box scores on these, it suggests that they've been competitive the past few games, but that really hasn't been the case. Outside of the Arizona game, which I think they played well in against a surging team that may have overlooked them, I, Oregon State, UCLA, they're both in complete control of this game. Colorado just so happened to sneak in the back door with a cover. Now, I can, can, can definitively say, and I don't love making a lot of definitive statements, but I can definitively say the offensive coordinator move away from Sean Lewis it was bad and has not yielded positive results. I'm not really sure what they're doing on that one. I think we all recognize that in the moment, this is not a 2020 hindsight thing, but man, it's been bad. They've slowed things down before tempo was this offense's greatest asset. They've only had a 38 and 34% success rates since the change. And Shadura Sanders, well, his pressure rate's still the same. The, the whole point of the move was because, well, my son's getting hit too much. So let's mix in a couple of runs. No, he's still taking the amount of pressures in relation to his dropbacks. So I, I, I don't get it. Uh, what do your numbers say about these teams? I, I think, Brett, my numbers, I, they don't have as much to say about these two teams as you. I certainly agree. Sean Lewis, we said at the time, we didn't understand. We haven't seen anything since to make us question that our, our lack of understanding. Here's what it boils down to. Going into week five, these two teams were combined seven and one. Since then, they're combined one and 11. The thing is, though, Brett, neither of these teams' current power rating is worse than it was in the preseason. Colorado's power rating for me was minus 7.3 in August. It's now minus 0.4, still among the largest upgrades of the season in all FBS. So I think they really, I mean, they came out really hot, won some games. Uh, The model was probably too low on them to begin with in terms of their power rating. I think the projected season win total is about right, actually, as as it turns out here. But the power rating was too low. Washington State, current power rating of 0.7. That's exactly what it was to start the year. Both of these teams just shot out of the gate and they regressed in the back half or two thirds of the season here to more of what we expected from the beginning. I mean, my numbers actually kind of thought this is where we'd be with these teams. We just didn't necessarily see the route we were going to take with the great start and then kind of falling off a little bit. In this game, I have Washington State minus three and a half. It's a 60% win expectancy for the Cougars. Both offenses should have the advantage in this game, Brett. 
And while both defenses are currently ranking at season lows, again, trending in the wrong direction for both these teams on on many fronts, Washington State's is significantly better than Colorado's. The Buffs' D is ranked number 112. It's a very large reason why this season has sputtered down the stretch, as you you noted. That, plus the fact this game is on the Palouse, it's why my number is like Wazoo. Bottom line, I have Washington State minus 3.5. It's a 40% chance that Colorado knots up the all-time series in this one at 7 apiece. And who knows when the next time they're going to play is, uh, given we don't know what conference Washington State's going to be in next year. Yeah, I, I think of, of all the plays in this game, I think I like under 64. Uh, you know, Washington State almost fully incapable of now piecing together a successful game plan. The the the, the book's out on, on how to completely stop this team. And unless they have a fundamental change over one week, I, I don't see it. I, I don't see it happening that much. Colorado on the other end, they're fundamentally changed from the early season. They're no longer the high-flying offense. They, they're slowing the game down a little bit more. I really think that this point total was, well, one, looking at the defensive metrics. Yes, of course, two very bad defenses, as you highlighted. But I also think it has a lot to do with season-long pace. Paces have changed. These two offenses are entirely different from what they were in week four. I'm not sure the market has caught up to that. I'm taking under 64 points in Colorado at Washington State. But hop on over to our Discord server where you can connect with over 4,000 sports betting fans and get live updates on our college football channel. There you can join a sharp and very active community. Don't forget to subscribe to Align's YouTube for weekly college football odds and betting videos all season long, just like this one. Stay tuned for bowl season, college football playoff. We got a, a bevy of content coming at you here soon. And subscribe to us on your podcasting app of choice, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, whatever you're using these days. Let us know down in the comments where you lean on each of these games. If you agree, disagree with my assessments, Kelly's model, your own uh, intuition there. And if you really like the show, leave us a good review. It's a good way to help us grow and reach new college football fans. Kelly, before we close up shop, please let everybody listening know where they can find your work. Absolutely. You can find me on X at KFord Ratings, the website KFordRatings.com, and over at TheLines.com as well, Brett. Well, thank you so much as always for watching. I'm Brett Gibbons. That's Kelly Ford. We'll see you all next time.